As Joel mentioned, uh, we are in a series called uh, Life on Mission. Uh, we defined it last week. Uh, it's our second week. We've got a couple more weeks to go through this. Um, we defined it last week as, as clearly as possible by saying that it's, it's, it's the gospel in action. It's the reality, the transformative uh, uh, power of Christ in us manifesting itself in the way we live and everywhere we go. And, and more specifically, the definition, I want to read it again. We're going to read it every week so it kind of sinks in, is this. What is life on mission? It's living out of my renewed identity in Christ. I listen to God and I respond to his calls and leading, stewarding how he's gifted and prepared me and where he's placed me and spending myself for the redemptive good of my family, neighbor, church, and world. So last week what we did is we looked at, at some of the barriers to a life on mission, some of the challenges, some of the pitfalls, some of the ways in which we stumble internally or externally with what it means, according to God, to live on mission. We talked about the, the barriers of fear and singularity, the, the, the pitfalls of comparing to one another, comparison, and, and the ultimate pitfall of, of misplaced identity. And that's a little bit of where we're going to be today. Today we're going to focus on the basis, the foundational basis of our life on mission. And more specifically, between the relationship between who we are and what we do. Between our being and our doing. So I want to lead you to, uh, to Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, if you don't, um, a couple people will hand out the Bibles. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll be glad to get one for you. Ephesians 2, 2 chapter 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Four, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we're going to be focusing primarily this morning on, on verse 10, on Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. But it's essential in order to get a sense of what this really means to look at the background of verses 1 through 9 in order to, in a sense, set the stage, have a place to stand from when we're looking at what, chapter, what verse 10 is talking about. 
And so the, the summary, if I'm going to rapidly summarize verses 1 through 9, it would be this. It would be that we're saved from death by grace, not works. That we're saved from death by grace, not by works. From death. Some of this most startling um, section in Scripture talking about the reality of what's true about us when we are apart from God. Dead in trespasses and sins. Children of wrath. Everything about us oriented towards self towards pleasure, no orientation towards God. And then, but God, because of his love, because of the richness of his grace upon us, he saved us by grace, by his unmerited favor, by what he chose to do on our behalf. It comes to us through faith, faith in what he has done. And even this faith is a gift so that no one can boast it says it's not the result of works. Actually, in that, in that clause, it says twice. It's not this. Okay, in case you missed it. It's not this. It's not the result of works. It's nothing you've done. No, no. I know you keep trying to make it about you, but it's not you. It's by him and by him alone, which, of course, by default protects us from the pitfalls of pride and envy. So the summary is this. Everything is from God. Grace is of him. Faith is of him. Our union with Christ is of him. The works that we have to do are of him, and intention to do them is of him. So there can be no boasting. There's no reason to, no basis. Which I want to say, as, as I was thinking through this and, and reflecting on this passage, which I love so much, I was thinking about this. If, if, you're, if you're not a Christian today and you're here and you've had the experience with Christians, whether on TV or in person, um, where, where you experience a tremendous amount of self-righteousness or, or boasting, a sense of superiority that they have something that, that, that's so much better and they're just so much better than you, I just, I'd like to apologize because the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we, if we really take it in, is we understand it's all his work on our behalf. That our very response to him is only because he's the one who calls us to respond. And so it leads us to incredible humility. The life of the Christian should be marked by powerful, indelible, can't-miss-it humility. And at the same time, with this real confidence, the sense of, of certainty in God's kindness that comes through, this hope that it's not their strength, not their goodness, and not their achievements. That's the gospel. That, loved ones, is what should be leaking out of us. Because by grace, you have been saved through faith. And it's not you. It's all him. So that's the summary. That's the basis, and since that's the ground from which we're going to look at this, this last verse in, in verse 10 and, and look at the two elements that make up the workmanship and the works. So we're going to look at being created into his workmanship, and then we're going to be, I'm sorry, recreated into his workmanship, and then we're going to talk about being recreated for his works. Created into his workmanship. This is, this is being. This is, this is identity. This is God's calling us to himself. Verse 10, the beginning of verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. So, look in your Bibles. What, what do we learn about us, about this workmanship? What do we learn about us? What do we learn about this workmanship that we are? Well, the first thing we learn is that it is his it's his workmanship. 
Uh, one of the, uh, the grammatical um, intricacies of this particular section is that his is the first word in the sentence. And what Greek scholars tell me, because I am not one, is that when you put the word first that shouldn't be first, it's saying it's, this is the important word. It's, it would sound probably better if, like, if Yoda was speaking it. It would be something like, hmm, <laughs> his you are the workmanship. Something like that, right? And we'd be like, that's a strange order of sentence, Yoda. But then you're Yoda. This is how you talk. But, but his, you are the workmanship, is actually a better way of looking at it. The, the, the emphasis, the weight is, it's his. His. All the stress is there. It's as though the force is saying that it is God and not the readers themselves, not you and me. That have made ourselves to be, that have made us to be the believers we are. We belong to God. We are His workmanship. Yes, it takes us once again back to the first question in catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God. Body and soul, life and death. We belong to Him. We are His workmanship. But we also, we are. We are his workmanship. It's, it's a done deal. This is not a, a question mark. This is not a, well, maybe. It just depends on how you work out and how you do. It's done. It's a fait accompli. It is not partial. You're not becoming this workmanship, this masterpiece. You are it. And it is being revealed. So let's talk about this workmanship All human beings, because we have Imago Dei, we have the image of God in us, have the dignity and the beauty that is above all other creation. But one of the things that we discover in this passage is that Christ is recreating us into what he says, his workmanship. So what is workmanship? Well, the Greek word poema, if you've been in church ever, you probably heard this, that, that, that workmanship is the word poema, which means where we get our word poem. And I imagine there's probably 50% of you in here that are like, poem, mm. the Shakespeare sonnets that move me. Yes, yes, I know. And then the rest of you are like, I hate Shakespeare. You know, and, and a poem is, doesn't really capture it. And, and so it's a little, bro it's broader than that. It's, it's the idea of a work of art, a masterpiece, a, a work of a craftsman, the master work of a craftsman. And so it is precious and valuable. It's remarkable. It's as much the purring of a 350 horsepower car as it is the leading of a beautiful fifth symphony. It's yes, engineers and musicians agree. That's the workmanship. It is precious and valuable. Art is beautiful. But what's true about an engine and about a sculpture or a piece of music is that it does something unique. It is the expression of the inner being of the artist. And in this case, the expression of the inner being of God, our creator, our re-creator. If you talk to any sculptor, he'll tell you that two things. One, that they can see. When they look at, at a block of marble, they can see what is going to be. And the second thing they'll see is that they're not the ones that are putting the beauty in it. Their goal is to draw the beauty 
out of it by offering themselves to it, by working upon it, which means that God may be coming at you with a chisel. That's what it means to be his workmanship, to be his masterpiece. That he is committed to drawing out the full measure of the beauty which he knows is there because he recreated you as a masterpiece. And that's some of what we get to do as friends and in marriage and in community. We get to participate with God in his beautifying of the masterpiece that he has already recreated. Which incidentally is one of the reasons why as friends, as, as married couples or in community, our goal is to be able to see past the, the chunks, the, the hunks of, of, of still not clearly formed beauty and say there is something beautiful. I know it is there because God made it. You are his workmanship. And my goal is to help you come fully realized to what he has in mind. It also means that you are something spectacular. That you are something spectacular because of the one who remade you. You're never to be dismissed or overlooked. You are the very inner being of the creator God on display. That's workmanship. His workmanship. So loved ones, God had an idea in mind when he made you. And to the degree that you become what he had in mind, to that degree will you become most truly and fully who you actually are. It says that we were created in Christ Jesus, created, recreated, anew, created anew. This is a not self-actualizing self-improvement exercise. This is this is being remade. The actual word created is in the, the passive sense, which means that it's something that's happening, it's being received, this being created. It's in southern speak, we did Yoda, we'll do southern, is we done been created. Loved ones, you done been created. You did not recreate yourself. You are his workmanship. It's the truest thing about you. We've been created anew. An identity that is made secure outside of our works. It's grace and recreation. All of it is his. Which is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17, which is also a very well-known verse, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And what does it say next? All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. Do you, do you see who's doing the work here? Do you see who's the prime mover? Do you, do you see the, the direction and the trajectory from him, by him? which is basically the shorthand in Christ Jesus is shorthand for basically God through God activity in Christ. These things have been accomplished and, and we've been pulled. What has been accomplished? We've been pulled out of this living death. So now we're in Christ, those passions that we were in, those being under the, the prince of the power of the air, those are no longer true of us. 
And therefore, it leaves us nowhere to boast. Nowhere. Nowhere to cover and shrink away. Because you are a masterpiece, not of your own doing, you're a masterpiece because he's made you so. And so stand up, lift up your head. Live with humility and confidence. And do not boast. You're his workmanship. You didn't workmanship yourself. He workmanshiped you and are now precious and valuable. His inner being reflected in you right now. Confident humility. So we are recreated into his workmanship. That's our, that's our being. That's our identity. That's God's call to himself. God calling us to himself. And then we are recreated for his good works. That's our doing. That's our mission. That's our God sending us out into the world. The second half of verse 10 says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Andrew Lincoln's quote captures this when he says, the life of this new creation, us, is to be characterized by good works. So good works are not the source, but the goal of the new relationship between humanity and God. Salvation is not by works, but for works. So, what are these good works? What do we learn about them? Look at your Bible. It says, good works. These works are good. I know. It doesn't take a master's degree to figure that out. But what does that mean? These works are good. All of them good. They are redemptive and just. They're consistent with the character of God that he desires to put on display for his glory and his purposes. They're good. All of them good. And they are works. They're things to get done. It's not just ideas and, and contemplation. It's real work, visible, impactful, effective, transformative works. They're good and they're works. They have many shapes and types, as unique as the masterpieces which they are assigned to. It says that they are works which he prepared beforehand. I know what you're about to say. You're saying, didn't we already talk about this? But who prepared them? This is a rhetorical question. Wait, not a rhetorical question. That would mean you don't answer. This is a real question. Who prepared them? He prepared them. It's his. These works belong to him too. Goodness me. They're not mine. They belong to him. There's still no room for boasting. Even what works I have to do are not on me. They don't come from me. They don't generate from me. It, it reminds me of the, the teenager who, his car being in the shop, borrows his dad's new sports car and goes to the party. Yes, he does look cool. Way cooler than when he's driving his 98 Honda Civic. No doubt about it. But he knows, and everyone else knows, it's not his. That's exactly what this is like. 
It could be shiny or it could be a little bit dull. It could be surprising. It could be enormous. It could be small. But these works are his. They belong to him. Not only do they belong to him, but they come from him. They originate from him. I don't have to generate any of them. I'm only responsible to walk in them, as we'll see in a second. It is not doing the work for God, but God doing a work in and through us. Which means that if they're his... And again, you know, think about the things that are in your life or the things that you're sensing that God has called you into or the, or the ways in which God has created you to, to affect the world around you and the things he's put in front of you to say, yeah, this, this is some of the things I'm wanting you to walk in or this is the thing I'm wanting you to walk in. Looking at it and recognizing that it's his, it should change everything about it. It's his this is a silly example, but this morning around 5.45, I was doing some final edits on this sermon, and my computer just poof, and I prayed, Lord, save my work, and I kid you not, the next second, I was like, your work, because, because and I literally, as I'm trying to reboot and praying there's a recovery file, I, I'm going like, okay, this is, this is your work, so whether it, you know, I lost the last, you know, day or half of pages or whatever. Like, it's his work. It really does change it. It really does change how we view and how we look at it. But the, the most significant thing it changes is that when, when we see and we understand that it's his, that it means that he's the one that must reveal it to us. We talked a little bit about that last week, that he's the one that must reveal it to us, which puts us in a posture of inquiry, asking, curiosity, pursuit. Not only must he reveal it to us, but the other thing he must do is he must empower it. It's his. He must empower it. He must provide the power to accomplish it. Like I said last week, the Lord requires nothing that he does not provide. And this is when I want to take a little bit of an aside in a way to talk about the main issue. What I think is so critical and how I believe so many Christians get messed up and bogged down, well-meaning, though, about what it means to live on mission. Let me put up 1 Corinthians. It's the issue of doing and being and being and doing and how we get all those things turned upside down. So here's two, two verses I want to read to you, and then we'll, we'll jump into that. First, uh, Colossians 1, 20 and 29 says, this is, this is Paul on mission. This is God saying, this is what I've made you for. I've recreated you for this purpose to do this. Him we proclaim. Paul was sent warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what God had called Paul to do to the Gentiles. For this, I toil. I work. Effort. But look what comes right after that. How is he working? Struggling with all his energy. That he powerfully works within me. Let's go to Philippians 2. Just in case you're thinking that's just there. Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, as you have always done, as you have always worked, as you've always been on mission, so now, not only, is I, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Walk back through that, that, that Ephesians chapter 2 all the way through. Recognizing you were objects of wrath, and now you've been saved. Work out your fear, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Four, so work out, work, ready, work, work, work out your salvation. Good Christians, work out your salvation. How? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his, what? Good pleasure. Almost sounds like good works. Like he has this thing that he's purposing. He's wanting to accomplish it and he's saying, I'm going to do it in you. So you work really, really, really hard to maximize the power that I have for you to accomplish the things that are mine that I'm giving to you to accomplish for me. Your toil, your struggle should be one of, God, how do I partake in the power of the Spirit that I may be able to step into whatever works you have for me in your power to accomplish them because otherwise I can't. You see, and Karl Barth says it this way. He says, the distinctive thing about Christian ethics is that we do not have to do any carrying without remembering that we are carried. And, and this is why it's so important to understand identity and mission and how they work together, the relationship between them. There is, I, I said this before, there is an order to the gospel. And if you flip the order, it's no longer the gospel. Our being remade in Christ must come before it must be the place from which we stand for any good works. Our doing must, must emerge out of our being. That our life on mission must be drawn out of our identity in Christ and never the other way around. And this is why if you are burdened, if you are dragged down, if you are discouraged and depressed about your Christian life, I suspect you're, a significant amount of is that you're actually trying to work out stuff that's not yours to work out in your own strength or you're doing the stuff that he's never given you to do. He says my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I think there's a reason for that. Is he's saying everything I'm calling you into, I'm going to provide. Everything I'm challenging you with, I'm going to come under. It has to be my power working in you. And, and we love our power. We love our works. We love our sense of control. And he has no part in that. We belong to him. He does not belong to us in that way. It must be in that way. It must be the order of the gospel. You can see it in, in Mark 3 when Jesus calls his disciples. It says in verse 14, uh, Jesus appointed 12. And it said for, for two things. So that they may be with him, identity being, that they may be with him. And that he might send them out to preach and to have authority over demons. Mission. Doing. That they may be with him and that he would send them out. John 15, maybe one of the most famous passages in Scripture about the vine and the branches. And in verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't think it's an overstatement that we should probably read that verse every day. I don't mean rote. I just mean I wake up going like, I got this. At least I got part of this. Lord, could use a little help over here. How many of us are afraid of looking at the things God is calling us into, especially the frightening ones, the things that are going to cost us, the things that are potentially going to undo us? And say, I don't think I can handle that. I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can sustain that. I don't think I can make it through that. When he's saying, you're right, you can't. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, oh, you can do all things. Every good work I have for you. Everything I've planned for you. They're mine and I will empower them. The order matters. Doing, sorry, being comes before doing. Being must come before doing. God must do something in you and then remind you of what he's done in you in order for you to begin to do anything of consequence of his. So that's, that's the order. Doing comes out of being. And we could have jumped in in this series to talk about, here's all the ways in which you figure out what, what God's called you to. How are you made? What are some of the particular things that God's laid before you? What does it mean to be on mission? Is it, is it at work? Is it primarily in your work? Is it, is it, is it, is it in, only in your family? Is it only to the poor? Like, what is life? And we could talk about that right away. And honestly, I'm fine with the tension of people going like, so wait a minute. Is it my work? I, I'm totally fine. Let's work that out. We're going to work that out with fear and trembling. Um, but, but folks, like, if we don't get this, then we're just going to do good stuff good stuff. And I don't even know that it'll be good. We must have this at the center. And not just like one time and you pound the pillar down. No, this is what it means to, to preach the gospel to yourself every day. That expression that's been unfortunately overused. It's coming back to the place of remembering what is truest about me, which is why I wanted to use this passage because I don't know that there's a place in the scriptures where over 10 verses, the entirety of the gospel is laid out for you. The whole picture of what it means to remember and to move. All right, off topic now. Off my notes. So back to our text. Let's learn a bit more about what, what these works are. It says that he prepared them. He prepared these good works for us. So they're his works and he prepared them, which means that they're purposeful and they're planned. They're not aimless and haphazard. He's not messing around with you for fun, sending you on some errand that goes nowhere but a cul-de-sac. That's not how he works. Everything is on purpose. I'm going to illustrate this and every illustration falls apart when we start dealing with the transcendent things of God. But here we go. Um, Becky and I tried uh, Blue Apron. You guys know what Blue Apron is? You know, they had a special deal thing, like get half off and whatever, so we tried that. Um, and we got our first meal in the mail. Do you guys know what Blue Apron is? Okay, let me explain. Blue Apron is, like, they send you a meal for two or four people, and they send you everything in this little kit. I love kits. So, so this little kit arrives with three meals in it, and, and last night we made our first Blue Apron meal. Now, it's an amazing thing. Everything is just the right size. 
Like there's a little tiny creme fraiche thing that looks like those, uh, you know, those, um, those butter things in pizza. You know, like just the right size to be able to put on the four tortillas that we're using. But when you pull it out, there's a couple things that happen. One, someone really had to plan this. I mean, down to everything, like down to the right amount of spices. The, I mean, it's meticulous. It was planned beforehand. No one was like, oh, shoot, we got to send this to the Millers. Uh, let's take one of these and throw those in there. Like, what are we making again? You know, there's, a, there's an anticipation of preparation. I know other people got the same meal we did. That's fine. But it, so that breaks down, see? Um, but, but man, the, the, literally, I'm, I'm, we're amazed at the preparation. But two other things came from it. Again, potentially stretching the metaphor. One, uh, there was a radish salsa that was going to be part of the meal. I hate radishes. Not as much as cats, but I hate radishes. <laughs> And so Becky's like, well, listen, we'll just make it and we'll taste it and see if it's any good. And I'm going like, I hate radishes. Like, I'm the kid who like, when my mom made radishes, I'd put them in my mouth and then go to the bathroom and spit them in the toilet. Like, that, I'm that kid. So I hate radishes. There can't be a way in which these radishes are good. We make the radishes, little lime, little other. The radish salsa was amazing. And I want it didn't taste like radishes, which is really helpful, but... <laughs> But the other ways in which this is true is I would never have done that. I could never have imagined that that was going to be good. That got appointed to me because Blue Apron decides what you're going to eat. And so that became what I had to eat. And I was tangibly surprised by how awesome it was. It was planned, it was purposeful, and it was good. The other thing that was true about it is that when we pulled out the ingredients for it, it didn't look like very much food. Now, I'm kind of a big boy, so I like me some food, you know? And, and like, literally, the portions is like, how, this, is, this is smaller than, like, a, than a Chipotle burrito. Like, how are we? This is for both of us, you know? Like, it was just the right amount of food. Like, we finished, and I was like, I'm full. Like, I'm really, I'm good. Like, I know. It's like they know. They planned and, I don't know, purposed this from before me asking them, and, and it was fitting. It was just right. This is not a commercial for Blue Apron. I don't know if we're going to do it ever again, but, but I know this, that he prepares, and it says that he has prepared these good works. They're intentional, they're not haphazard, and they're for our good, and they're not always what we think we want or should be doing. It also says that they're beforehand, that he prepared them beforehand, beforehand, which says it indicates that God's prepared these good works before we were created in Christ Jesus. And I think this, Becky asked me, said, what are some of the things that you're most excited about, about sharing with, with you guys tomorrow? I said, one of the things I'm most excited about that's come out of this, this reflection has been, like God has works that he's prepared. So he, it's like he's got this, almost like a, this thing that he's been like, I've prepared this for Jonathan to walk in it. And, and I can't wait for Jonathan to walk in this, to do this good work. Because one, I know the incredible good that's going to come through him because I'm going to be through him. And two, I actually know the magnitude of what it's going to do to him and in him. He planned them beforehand and he's excited God is excited about the work he wants to do in you. 
if we see the work of God as primarily duty, as something that you have to like check off the box to keep him happy, to like be a good Christian or whatever, there's no energy there. There's no excitement. There's no passion. But he is excited about what he has prepared for you because of what he wants to do through you. It's prepared beforehand. It was already there. And what it means is that you have good works. You don't have an empty blue apron box. You don't have a jersey without a number. You don't have a, a direction sheet with no paper, no, nothing written on it. Like, God has things for you. So some of you might be sitting here going, like, I feel like God has too many things for me. And some of you are sitting here going, like, I don't think God has anything for me. And I just want to say, because the Word says that God has prepared things for you, His things for you, specifically for you. And he's excited about it. And he can't wait for you to walk in it. To walk in it. The beautiful thing that is true about this passage is that it, takes, it starts with walking and it ends with walking. Verse 1 says that you were in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked. They're exactly the same word. And it's like the beginning and the end, like two bookends. And Paul ends it by saying, there's this whole new thing you get to walk in. And it's no longer trying to gratify yourself to make your life work for you so that you can just carve out a little bit of something for you out of this terrible, difficult world. No, there's something totally new because you've been remade. And now there are these works you get to walk in and they're better than all of the pleasures and all of the self and all of the me. There's something totally other. They are satisfying and delightful and they're good. So walk in them. That's the cause. Walk in them. The assumption of the passage, by the way, is that you will. Is that you will find yourself saying, Lord, I don't know what you have for me. But I want to listen. I want to, I want to reflect. I want to discover. Because I want to do the things, the good things that you set up beforehand for me. Because they're They're awesome. And you've made me for them. You've remade me for them. Like perfectly remade me for them. So that I can walk in them. And you're promising me that you'll do it in me. That if I'll lean into you and, and rest in you and call on you and find your power, then, then it'll just be. It won't be radishes. It'll be radish salsa. It'll be something totally else. And there is our greatest joy, loved ones. Works are a gift from God. They're not a responsibility primarily. They're not a duty primarily. They are a gift, just like the very grace that will enable you to do them. And it's his. When you are walking in the works of the Lord, you are walking in the midst of the beauty of what God values, loves, and wants to put on display. And you know what he wants to put on display more than anything else is himself. And that's what you get to do. You get to put God on display through the things that he's given you. So what has God prepared for you? I don't know. Some of you may not know either. And that's, that's okay. That's something we're going to do over the next several weeks is, is work in that, step in that. But as we do, 
There are barriers and pitfalls. And then there's this foundation to which we must return every time. I told you I'd love this passage because I think it means it's what you get to pray each time you're waking up in the morning, each time you begin your day. This is what it looked like as I wrote it out. I said, Lord, I, I was dead in my trespasses and sins, an enemy and destined to a just wrath from you. But you, out of the great love and mercy you have for me, you made me alive with Christ and you raised me and you seated me in the heavenlies with him. My position is secure. And you did all this as a gift, a gift of sheer grace, igniting faith in which I receive your salvation freely, not based on anything I've done, leaving me no room to boast, only to respond in gratitude and in submission. And when you saved me, you remade me into a particular and purposeful work of art, your unique masterpiece. And now I exist to put you on display by living out through the power of your spirit the unique good works which you had in mind when you created me in the first place. So here I am today, listening and ready to respond to you. That's what I believe Ephesians 1 through 10 invites us to, is to rehearse the gospel in such a way that we find ourselves saying, here I am, Lord, send me. And that's what the, that's what the table empowers us to. It reminds us of the great gift he's done. It reminds, you of, it reminds you of grace. That you can't come to this table because you've earned anything or because you've made anything of yourself or because you're going to impress God with what you're about to do. No. You come to this table to receive freely what he has done for you. And it changes your heart. It changes your orientation. It shifts your perspective from what you do to what he's done so that you could do what he wants you to do. And so it's free. And it cost him everything, which is why it's so precious and so beautiful. And if you let it, it will change you over time. So I invite you to come and receive the grace of God. Let's prepare our hearts. Father, we love you. Even a, a desire to desire you must come from you a desire to want to do your works, to trust you, to, to accept and receive your grace must come from you. And so we, we ask and we come dependent and desperate, but with incredible confidence that you will because you say you do. And so that's what we're resting on is that your promises say that you will work these things out in us as we allow you to work them out in us. And so we come open-handed to receive from you Change us. Make us mighty men and women for the good works you set before us. That the world may know our families and our church, our communities, our neighbors, our co-workers would be different, impacted, transformed by those good works because you love them and you love us. Pray this in Christ Jesus who purchased this for us. Amen. Loved ones, come receive the body and blood of Christ.